I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government, and I'm really excited to be having this evening's discussion with Paul Tucker, Sir Paul Tucker, um, about his book, Unelected Power, the Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory, Regulatory State. And as he says, this is a lot, lot more than a book about central banking. The reason I'm really excited about this is that I think this is not just a well-written book, though it is, and our regulars here will know I don't often sit up here and say that. It mix, mixes academic research with an anecdote from your many years and walks of life, but um, has really gone into important questions, and the, the timing could not be better. Uh, it brings in this question of who uh, makes the rules, who has the right to make the rules that shape our lives, and who are those people accountable to, and really test it against um, uh, our modern democracy and says, is democracy you know, up to coping with this? And it looks at, I mean, from our point of view as the Institute, dealing a lot with technocrats, it deals a lot with the question um, of people's trust in those technocrats and whether that has faded, a lot with the ideas of recent government, of the past 30 years of government, even though you'll see it in the first paragraph, the new public management, um, and the theories of you know, how you bring in the market and so on, and really says this is an important problem for democracy to crack because it is testing and straining the, the, the grounds of our democracy. So I'm um, many, many angles we, we might pursue in this, but uh, I'm really, really pleased to be having this discussion, which is live-streamed. Welcome to all of you out there. Paul, very warm welcome. And... I wondered if you would just start by telling us, really, the, the problem that you see. I, I see a problem um, in constitutionalism, if you like. If, if you buy a book on constitutional change in this country over the last 20 years, it will be about Europe and devolution and human rights and moving the um, Supreme Court out of the second chamber and almost nothing will be said about independent agencies. Yet I'm prepared to wager that the marginal lawmaker in this country, as in the United States, is an unelected um, regulator. And we don't take that very seriously. Um, I mean, what, what these regulations are is these are legally binding um, norms backed by the coercive power of the state. and. The struggle for democracy was partly about electing the people that can do that. And in my old world, central banking, that mattered, because when I and others argued for regulation and supervision being returned to central banking, it meant that the standard arguments for monetary policy independence just didn't carry across, and one had to engage in a whole set of um, more difficult issues. Now, this debate rages in the United States since the... 1930s, since the new um, deal, and hardly at all here. Um, it's as though this country is casual um, about power. Now, some people have said to me, Paul Walker, the most famous central banker in the modern era, said to me, my God, you're taking on the independence of these things. And I said, no, no, I don't want to do that. What I want to do is see whether actually you can find a principal place for independent agencies, agencies insulated So, so insulated give us some examples of what you're talking about. You are talking about the, uh, the, 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 the Bank of England, but you're talking about much more than Ofcom, that. Um, Ofgem, Ofwat, um, all of the um, offs. I'm talking about any agency 
that is day-to-day -day insulated from the politics of both ministers and their civil servants and from the legislature. Now, of course, Parliament can change the law, um, but unless they change the law, these people are charged with reaching their own view on what the law in their field should be. Often guided, this is not actually true of the Bank of England, but often guided by multiple objectives which are vague. And so they are given the task of trading off one public policy objective against another. Well, you know, when I was young, we elected people to do that kind of um, thing, and we've drifted away from um, doing so. We also have. Well, let, me, let me just ask you on that point. Though. So, how much do you feel that this is a new phenomenon? You say, you know, you, I mean, your book has many examples. In fact, going back to Romans and uh, um, the analysis of Roman law, and as you said, it's been a debate very active in the states for a long time. Um, but here, you, you seem to be saying, look, it's a newer phenomenon. Relatively well, the, new. The, the, the bit that you're concerned about is relatively yeah, new. Yeah, relatively new. This is, yeah. this is a phenomenon essentially of the 1990s onwards. And in this country in particular, it is, it's associated with two things. Um, the, making the Bank of England independent in mm -hmm. 1997 and the fad for new public management. Mm. You want to just tell people, and I think most people here are very so, familiar with that, but just tell people so, what you mean by that. So, about the new public yeah, management. The yeah. new public management, which I think is largely dreadful for what it's worth, although I don't get into that in the book very much, is it, it says that we should, we should run government a bit like a public company. And so when we delegate um, to an agency, the agency should have a chief executive or director general, and it should have a board above them. I think this is absolutely dreadful in terms of, of, of public policy um, because what it means is that you have um, typically a single lawmaker backed by a board who, is, who are not involved in, closely involved in, in um, the making of the law. Now, I know a number of people on these boards, and I, I said to a few of them, so I, I don't think you're involved in policy. And they said, of course we're involved in policy. And I said, um, uh, um, the conversations all had this structure. Oh, did you have a confirmation hearing? No. Do you vote on the rules that you pass? Do you, do you give public speeches or testify to Parliament on, on your votes, particular laws? No. I then spoke to some ministers. I've, been a, I've had a privileged adult life. I know people in the cabinet and the previous one. And I said, who is the policymaker in such and such an agency? And they would always name one person um, who was the director general or chief executive. Now, in the United States, which has its own separate set of problems, by the way, this would be considered absolutely outrageous. Indeed, the only agency that's been created like that in, in recent decades, the Consumer Finance Protection Agency, it's making its way through the courts, that actually its structure is unconstitutional precisely because lawmaking power has been put into the hands of one person. Whereas, you know, the thing about Parliament is there are lots of people in it. And actually, the, the Bank of England, there are lots of people on the Monetary Policy Committee. There are lots of people on the um, Financial Policy Committee. So I think we lost our way on, on this. And, right, I, but let's and I don't think it was debated can we, can we, very much. No, no it, it, wasn't, it wasn't at the time. And a lot of the consequences, which we'll come on to weren't foreseen at the time, but if we can just stick with the roots of this, as you, uh, I'm talking parochially about the UK at the moment, uh, as you describe it, 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 this was done for good reasons. Yes. Bank of England independence, um, you know, getting it away from politicians, stopping all this um, volatility of, you know, political moods and, and fashions, creating uh, independent regulators to foresee the 
um, the, the, um, the, the um, new, newly privatized um, utilities and so on, um, they were, you know, they were put there for good, for good reasons. Yes, so, and, and let, me, let me give you a reason that doesn't work and then a reason that mm. basically does. The reason that doesn't work is expertise. And because you could set up an agency that was independent, insulated from politics, whose advice was to give public, whose, whose role was to give um, public advice to ministers on what to do. And um, the US used that for, in, in deciding which military bases to close a generation ago. And actually, it's exactly how monetary policy worked in this country between falling out of the ERM in the early 90s and 1997. And it's how the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, works. And the OBR shows that you can get really impressive people to be on independent advisory bodies. So expertise, although necessary, doesn't work. What kind of works, um, but has to be qualified, is the ability to commit to a policy objective. It is very, very hard for elected ministers to commit to, to sticking to the policy objective that they that they announce or put into legislation. Why is that? Because they will always prioritize um, getting re-elected or getting elected for the first um, time. Whereas in certain societies, you can, what, you, what you can do with the people that head an independent agency is you can harness um, their public reputation and their professional reputation to their success in delivering the mandate they've been um, given. So, and, and commitment is useful because commitment affects people's behavior very obviously in the economy, but in all, all, all walks of life to different degrees. But although that's a necessary condition, it can't be sufficient because the whole of government is riddled with commitment problems on, on which basis, you know, hand over the whole of government to people like me, uh, um, which would be really ghastly. We know in our bones that's terrible because what we don't want to do, we don't want to... Um, delegate to unelected people big choices on distributional issues or questions on basic values. Well, this is a really important point, and you, you, uh, that's a sentence from your book which I picked out, um, precisely that point about delegating uh, either, as you put it, distributional issues or, or values. Um, it's, it's just to get a bit, a bit to the, the consequences of some of this and start with the Bank of England, because obviously after the financial crisis, um, Though uh, it, it embarked on QE, which has had uh, a redistributional effect. In fact, a recent bank report talked about it uh, handing 350,000, I think was the figure, additional in wealth to the top 10% or something. It, it, this is the kind of thing that you're, t you're, you're talking about. So, there's, so, so I'd say two things about that, a lesser one and a greater one. The lesser one is that I think that central banks in the advanced world were, advanced economy world, were slow to talk about this. We, as I then was, started doing so in 2012 after being pushed into it by the About the consequences of a policy yes, that for is distribution. now given, given credit the distribu for the distribution stopping something effects. worse, yes. but having this big distribution. And, and, we, and we were pushed into that by the Treasury Select Committee, and that yeah. was a great thing. I'm sure we'll come on to select committees, we but will. that's a good mm -hmm. example of them doing their job well. I think the emphasis, though, should be on distributional choices rather than distributional effects. What, what do you mean? So it's... When, when we, as I then was, decided to embark on QE, we didn't have a meeting about um, how can we help the rich or how can we help the unemployed or how can we help people in Wales. We had, we had a debate about how can we get aggregate demand spending in the economy going so as to prevent the, this falling into the Great um, Depression. Also, 
um, we insisted on, on government um, blessing our use of QE as a general um, policy. And we, and we talked, and we, and we had, Mervyn and I and Charlie had legitimacy in mind when we did that. Um, my own view is that it was plainly within the Bank of England's legal powers to do QE without permission. Um, I think other people could take a different view on that. That's my clear view. Um, but my view is that it's unwise to do that if you're about to do something within your powers, but no one has ever contemplated you doing. So, you know, in, in Europe, I think Mario should have gone to ministers before he saved Europe. I think he did save the European um, the Euro area project. But I don't think it was... I think one of the reasons they're in political difficulty is because he acted without anything more than Berlin's blessing. And they being the European Central Bank? Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. yes sorry. IFG problem of acronyms. We you know, you're quite right. It was my problem of first names. I'm sorry. Terrible, 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 terrible habit. I shall live to an age where I don't know any of these people and don't yeah. know their names. I look forward uh, to that. That's right. <laughs> Purity can stay on my side. Um, how much do you feel that this... That, that, that mistrust of experts has been a factor in populism, in distrust of government. Do you think, do you think people are really conscious that, uh, uh, and, and consciously angry at these technocrats whose names they may not know? Yeah, um, in some inchoate sense, yes, I do. Yes. I mean, the book, is, the, the book is really an intervention in the debate about populism versus technocracy. Yes. And I envisaged yes. it as that. I started writing yes. it in 2000. 14, and I envisaged it as that from the beginning. And it's not that I think that people go to the pub and talk about particular agencies. I mean, that, that was a kind of ludicrous thought. It's that something has been lost. The, the, the most brilliant thing about representative democracy is that it separates how we feel about the system of government from how we feel about the government of the day. And what I know about government is that every arm of it, bit of it, eventually goes wrong, sometimes horribly wrong. I mean, a view, a view of legitimacy that it depends on achieving good results is bonkers, because eventually, however good you are, you will achieve really bad results that will harm people in a terrible way, which, of course, is what happened with the financial crisis. Well, with representative democracy, you vote out the people that let you down without changing your allegiance to the system of government, except you can't, you can't vote out people like me or the people that run off Ofcom or... And so what you're describing uh, in, in, in parts of this is people getting fed up with representative democracy itself. Or just government. Also, 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 Somehow look, the system of government. It's not enough to be elected. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to keep communicating with me. It's, it's not enough, as you said at the beginning, to be expert. Um, and they can't possibly be expert, because otherwise yeah. there wouldn't be this mess. And actually, the truth is you can be expert, but not expert enough for what hits you in the... Well, you can um, be expert in the world, world. and you make a mistake. Yes. Yeah, and lo- lots of mistakes get made in governments and all democracies all of the time. And yet, the people ultimately need to feel that they can control the course of policy through the ballot box and through anticipation of the ballot box. And that is less true to the extent that there are vague delegations to agencies mm. that are insulated from politics. But I'm. So it's the vagueness, it's the, it's the indeterminate um, delegations that I'm, mm. that I'm most concerned about. I think when the delegations are reasonably precise, um, then there can be public debate about whether or not 
um, the agency is doing a half decent job or a decent mm. job or a terrible job, mm. and Parliament can decide whether or not to sustain mm. the delegation. Mm. Which you know, I think, and I, ultimately, I think that's the role of select committees and parliamentary. Mm. Well, I'm, um, I'm going to oversight. come on to the, the recommendations um, in, in a second. And unlike many books of this type, this has a lot of recommendations, which is great, um, because many people are very, very good at analysing the problem, but not. Uh, going further from there. But just before we get there, I, I wanted to touch in a bit more detail on the central, central banks themselves. As you said, this is not a book just about central banks, nor are you just um, a central banker. But um, are they, in a sense, um, sui generis of this? Uh, you know, that they, they, the, the kind of problem that they cause uh, or that they represent um, stands apart from, say, what you know, whatever Ofcom or Ofgen or something might do, because of its impact on uh, many, many people's lives, because of what how much monetary policy affects um, really everyone's life in the country. Paralleled only probably by the judiciary, and the, and the yes. thing about the judiciary is the debate about how the judiciary fits into our system of government yeah. is three, four hundred years old. Yes. Um, and, and richly, richly debated, whereas the debate about how central banks fit into representative or constitutional democracy is, you know, um, generation and a half mm. um, old. And, the, and the, the reason they're different is, um, fr from all the other agencies, is, is that they have quasi-fiscal powers. Mm. I mean, some monetary institutions by definition, have quasi-fiscal powers, which we as citizens um, do not want them to use as fiscal powers. We want them to use, to be, use them only in a very narrow way to, um, to pursue a particular objective, broad price stability. Mm. Um, and, and yet now also they have this power of, of writing laws, writing um, regulations, which is a... You know, this is, mm. these are, and, and, they, and they combine these things, whereas most agencies are in one, one world or another. Mm. Um, whereas central banks are almost unique in mm. being, they provide services to the economy, they're in the fiscal state, they're in the regulatory state. If you have an economic emergency, they're there. Um, I mean, it's, they're, they're very powerful. Mm. That's even before getting on to banking risk and, and so on. All right, so they sit there as a tower in the middle. Um, just before we get on to your solutions, what about other... So if we're trying to map out the things that we're most concerned about, and we've got them there, what, 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 I where, where would you put other agencies? I think media regulators... In this country, I think there's a problem with the utility regulators in that it's not actually clear how independent they are today. Um, and one of them, I think, I think it's off-chain, the governments have taken the habit of changing their objectives, statutory objectives and sub-statutory objectives sufficiently frequently that actually they, they can't be a problem, a solution to a problem of credible commitment because the government hasn't actually decided what it wants to commit to. Uh, for, for, for good reasons, by, by the way. But I think the really big one here is Ofcom. I mean, something that surprised me when I was writing the book was that when Ofcom became the regulator of the BBC, there was almost no debate about whether Ofcom was fit for purpose. I'm not, I'm not for that role. Mm. Now, I'm not making an ad feminem point um, at all. And what I mean is, it's... It was, Fran France it was had a, a massive expansion, massive of, what, expansion. Of, of what it was doing into a kind of content... Although it was a new, really new part of its role, but massive expansion of sort of content 
regulations. So France um, had a debate about a quarter of a century ago about whether one agency should be both the regulator of media content mm. and the regulator of the economics of the media and telecoms. And the answer was absolutely not. They'd be too powerful. Mm. And that debate didn't happen here at all, nor, nor did, nor, uh, nor was there any debate that I can see that, well, even if we are going to combine them, we'll restructure it in a way that makes this safe. And I, I, mm. two summers ago, um, I said this at somebody's party, and people that had been involved in the debate, they said, yes, yes, all of that was debated. And I, I very, I was you know, uncharacteristically meek and mild, and in the autumn, said, you know, could you send me all the submissions, which, are, which in fact I'd read most of already. Mm. And what I've just said was not debated. It was not debated. Right, all this, sorts this, of other this, things were debated yeah. about it. But this but predates not actually the BBC, well, uh, Ofcom taking on the BBC, doesn't it? Because it was a a, the economic com competition regulation. Yes. It was still pronouncing on whether RT had offended yeah. uh, yes. even more egregiously yes. than the last And that time. wasn't debated yeah. then. And then when it became the regulator of the BBC, I mean, this is serious power. This is very serious power. It also does subtle things which lie a little bit beyond the scope of my book, which is it is a lot easier for a minister to write a letter to the Director General or Chief Executive of Ofcom saying we're not very happy with you, the way you're regulating the BBC, than it is, without, without that becoming a news story, um, than it, it would be for a minister to write to the Director General or the Chair of the, of the Governors of the BBC. And there was precisely such a letter um, um, about 18 months ago. Now, anyone who spent their life in government like me would think, well, of course, that's why you would want to do it if you're a Mandarin, and that didn't really feature in the debate at all. The debate instead was, do we want the BBC to self-regulate anymore? No, because they haven't done that terribly well. Do we want to set up a new independent agency? No, because that would be terribly costly. Oh, Ofcom seemed to have done a quite good job. That will be... And, and, and the trick is, I would say to you, that those involved in monitoring this, John knows this perfectly well, is think about what's the game? What's the, what's the, why, why, would you, why would you want to do that? If, um, um, and sometimes it's no, for no reason other than the given reason. But um, as soon as I saw it, I thought, ah, look for letters from ministers to heads of Ofcom and you know, Google it. No, there it was. And no story about it. Whereas had the letter been to the... Um, to the bosses of the BBC, there would have been a story. Now, my concern is not, although it sounds as though I'm concerned about the substance of that, it is not actually that. It is that there was no debate about this, mm. which does bridge into the solutions. How can, we, how can we have a form of government where we hardly debate um, where power lies and how it's going mm. to be exercised? Mm. Which actually, you know, with my old shop, that's not a tremendous problem. Mm. There's lots and lots of debate about my old shop. Yeah. But, but, um, um, but not about all of these other things, which yeah. affect people's lives. Let's come on to your, your, your solutions uh, for this then. But uh, what you've described is, in a, in a sense, peculiar to Britain, uh, the kind of, um, it's not quite casualness, but the lack of constitutional reference or, if you like, a resonance with which these things are being decided. Um, so you've, you've got lots of recommendations. Before we go on to solutions, yeah, can I just say something about Germany? Yeah. To just to give a sense of the variety, the, 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 yeah. how this problem manifests itself in different ways. So Germany is unusual in that um, its written constitution makes provision for the administrative state. That most written constitutions for the big democracies do not, and obviously doesn't, um, doesn't here. And Germany's constitution makes it absolutely clear that the administrative state, all the agencies mm. that we're talking about, shall be under ministerial control. Mm. That's the de jure position. Mm. I can tell you it's not the position de facto. So, so, so they have got 
a completely different set of, mm. of, of problems. And the reason I wanted to say that before getting to the solutions is I was trying to write down principles for delegation that would be you know, um, as useful mm. in America and Germany mm. as, in the, as in the UK. Because I, I am positing and I argue that actually we do have things in common. You know, mm. the, the deep values Even of constitutional... Even though the I mean, their constitutional arrangements are very different. Yes. And, and yes. Um, they approach these yes. things very differently. That, that this problem, that they have this problem in common, you're saying. And, that our, and, 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 our, and our deep values about, yes. about the rule of law and um, constitutionalism and, and representative democracy. And if I'm wrong about that... Mm. Um, which you know, something for the seminar room. If I'm wrong about that, then the solutions become much less general and, and become much more um, particular. Mm. I don't think. I'm and wrong and about from where that. you are, I spent quite a bit of time in Harvard, where you have, I think, two births. Um, um, yeah. the, 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 the problem, the issues look similar enough to make that kind of. Approach. Yeah, yeah, yes, I think so. I think so. And in France, yeah. France have debated it very actively. By the way, there was a the French Senate isn't a very powerful body, but. Um, can affects public debate, and they, they produced a, um, an incredibly critical report about their independent agencies. It feels like five years ago. And the assembly and the palace and the executive picked it up, and they passed a law which set out a statutory framework for independent agencies and reduced the number of independent agencies by about a small half dozen. They decided that a number of agencies that were independent shouldn't actually be, if you thought about it properly, now, I, I, it's, I mean, I ended up, this I, you know, reveals a prejudice in a way. I was surprised to find that France had a more active debate about all of this than, yeah, than, no, than Britain. But they have. And a more kind of you know, conscious public yes, debate, yes. debate about this than, than, than we have. And, and just so coming to your recommendations, you're not, by and large, saying get rid of these independent agencies. You're, you're about trying to make them more accountable, both in our case to Parliament and to the public. That's right. Ways. That's right. That's, some of them I wouldn't have as independent as they are. So, the, such, one of, one of I, I will give a concrete example in a second. One, one, one of the one of the key um, precepts of design I have is that um, an independent agency should have, um, for each mission, should have a single dominating objective that is clear, publicly debated, and can be measured. So you know the FCA the Financial Conduct Authority, which actually de jure is more independent than the Bank of England. Um, it has three um, equally ranked objectives, all of which are vague, and also one, one de facto um, policymaker. And I, I think this... And I can't... You know, this is the kind of thing I know by about measured, By measured. We, we by measured. Like 2% inflation target. Like a 2% inflation target. And the point, for the, the point yeah. here is that all of you can look up um, is inflation way above 2%, way below 2%, and to the extent that it's away from 2%, is there a story about why they've missed the target that is um, plausible? It's quite easy to monitor. Mm. The, there's a separate debate about whether the, whether the objective is sensible, but you can measure them against mm. um, the objective they've been um, given. Now, I, I wouldn't myself know how to write a measurable... Um, single objective for a market regulator. In the States, which where the SEC is the equivalent body, the Securities and Exchange Commission is not an independent agency on my definition. They have three objectives. 
um, protect investors, efficiency of markets, and capital formation. And typically, when a new president is, um, comes into power, a chair will change, and the, the, the weight being given to those objectives will change. Well, unsurprisingly, Democrats out, Republicans in, there's now a much greater emphasis on capital formation than there perhaps was before on, on investor protection. What's the difference between the SEC and the FCA in this respect? The SEC has to go to Congress every year for its money. Mm. Um, the president can't tell them what to do, in fact. Um, and they have job security. The president can't get up in the morning and sack uh, any of the commissioners of the mm. SEC. But they have to go and get their money. And I'm you know, I, 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 lucky enough that I've probably known more or less every chair of the SEC since the mid-'80s. And by God, are they sensitive to swings and shifts and sentiment in Congress. And that strikes me as a good thing, not a bad thing. Sometimes mean they achieve less than they could. But in terms of the legitimacy of the structure, um, it means that Congress has a say in these, yeah. in, in these trade-offs rather than someone like me sitting in a room and thinking, how, how do I want to weigh these things? And the game here, oh, by the way... This, this, look, this, this sounds uh, admirable and completely plausible. Have one yes. objective and, uh, that, that, that can be measured or you know, specified and so everyone can judge it. But, I mean, if you take the, uh, the uh, utility regulators here, yeah. as, as I think you were hinting at us a second ago, is that actually possible? They, they're bound, aren't they, to have several objectives, um, controlling prices or set, setting prices, um, uh, but encouraging enough investment so that, say, the water can meet environmental regulations. Uh, there, there's going to be several in there which pull at different... I'm not different sure, and I'm not, I'm not expert enough mm. on the details of them to, to give goodness knows, people have spent their whole they, lives on, well, I, on but, those regulations. But, 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 the, but, the, but the driving um, argument for the delegation mm. in the first place was that it could be done, and that basically this was simply about economic efficiency. Yes. And, you know, there's a questions about dynamic efficiency, which way the investment yeah. comes in, versus static efficiency, but nevertheless... That you, you precisely wanted um, to give them that objective, and you had a commitment problem because if you change the rules of the game, you will get underinvestment in the in mm. the infrastructure. Now, you may want to flesh that out with a remit in the way that the Treasury does for the Bank of England, but you would want to take the design of that remit really, really seriously. Whereas some of the remits for the remit for the CMA a few years ago was was signed by a junior minister. Mm. Well, a junior minister has never signed the Treasury's remit to the Bank of England fleshing out mm. um, the inflation um, regime, and mm. so there's there's a lack of seriousness about mm. these things. And 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 my point is that that's what occurs when when delegations are entered into lightly, whereas you know the. The independence of the Bank of England was agonised over for, for a decade, with the debate mm. precisely being about the democratic deficit. And then because it all seemed a good idea, a new public management, oh, well, let's do lots, lots more of that then, get it out of our air, and we can probably mm. control them indirectly anyway. Mm. That's the... You've got lots of recommendations. We were just touching on, on, on a couple there, but you've got ones like, I've written them down, there's such a nice um, uh, long list of them. Um, but you've got things like principles for the exercise of discretion, uh, transparency that's not deceptive. I'll come, come, come back to that. But you've got two, two kind of groups of things that are to do with uh, you've got testimony to legislative committees. Yeah, that's kind of Responsibility to yeah. the legislature. And then you've got 
uh, a lot of stuff about responsibility for the public and communication yeah. for the public. And I want to dig into these yeah. these two a tiny bit. Well, take take Parliament in our case. What do you want these agencies to have to do uh, to Parliament? Testify regu regularly. Two select committees. On, two select committees. Yeah. Testify. And be obliged to do that. Re to be obliged yeah. to do that regularly on how what they are doing um, relative to the clear objective that they've been. Now, select um, committees have the, uh, you know, could, could call these... And so, and so one uh, of the things I say out. is, there was a chair of the Agriculture Committee quite a few years ago who said, in this country, I think, um, um, we've just got too much to do to do this properly. And that may, be, that may be true. And so my position as a citizen and author on that is we should have no more independent agencies than Parliament, the Parliamentary Select Committee system is capable of overseeing. And so there is, you know, there's something big going on here. I would trade off a little bit less welfare in the short run for a little bit more legitimacy. And that's based on my view that since government's going to screw up eventually, um, people are suddenly going to scream if they discover that the people making all these decisions for them weren't elected. Now, um, this has worked pretty well with the Bank of England, but that's because I think it is fairly prestigious to be seen on television um, grilling or asking questions of the governor and the senior people from the Bank of England. That's, that's great. That's incentive compatible. Mm. I mean, uh, John McFall, I think, did a brilliant job at the Treasury Select Committee of building a culture where they would um, produce unanimous reports, and that, that enhanced the standing mm. of all of them. So what exactly would you like to change uh, from the moment? That the committees are obliged uh, to call the heads of agencies? Um, that the heads of agencies are obliged to turn up? I mean, some of this does happen. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. I, I, in this country, I'm not sure that needs to be a law. It could be just be a kind of norm. But um, mm -hmm. I would like it to be a bigger deal. And, mm -hmm. and I would like these to be really serious occasions. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we didn't, when I was at the Bank of England, we did not regard... Um, testifying to the Treasury Select Committee as a burden or as something that we had to survive. I sometimes think the Fed has an approach of getting and out of Congress. I don't think that's true of the current chair, by the way. Um, whereas our view was we would have meetings before we'd say, well, what, what, what do we want to achieve? What do we want to achieve? What do we want to put in there? What do we want to put in our minds? And I think this was a sinister thing. This was, my God, their parliament. This is an opportunity where we can say things to them. Um, and this was, we regarded this as fantastic. And it wasn't always terribly comfortable. But, well, here's the crispest way of putting it. If you ask the president of the Bundesbank, either the current one or any of the previous ones, do they testify to the Bundestag? The answer is, on monetary policy, mm -hmm. the answer is, is, no, we don't, and we shouldn't, because it would undermine... Our, our independence. Certainly the view of Eddie George, Mervyn King and me and others was absolutely testifying um, to the Treasury Select Committee is what underpins our independence because it lends it, it lends it a legitimacy that we can never conjure for ourselves however well we do. Mm. And this is really interesting, this, this, this idea that legitimacy isn't just um, automatic by virtue of the existence yeah. of a body or something. It, it really has to be earned and sometimes... Uh, repeatedly or you have to seek it you have to yes. seek it you have to be conscious yeah. that that you that you need to be kind of renewing it all the time because yeah. you know you're going to screw up you just you just don't know you just yeah. don't know what it is you're doing that's going to go wrong obviously you're trying not to screw up but you know 
that you're going to, and you need this cushion of political support behind you. And, and you, know, you, you know that the public seeing you on television um, talking about these things gives you... Well, it's really important. I mean, God's sake, you're doing these things on their behalf. Mm, mm. For those of you who didn't catch the launch of our, our parliamentary monitor, our new annual report looking at how effective Parliament is on, on Monday, I do recommend it. We go into the uh, select committees quite a bit and, and, uh, and uh, say how they could be better. Let me just finally, before coming to questions, I think there are going to be quite a few. Um, you want also more accountability or more, more accounting to the public. How do you see that working? Yes. Uh, so it's related to the select committee thing. Yeah. One of the great things about the select committee... But is it, is it through parliament or is it... It's direct? the most important part of it is through parliament. The great yeah. thing about select committee appearances is that you have to use the language, you have to use non-technical language. It forces you to, to get out of the seminar room, out of your ivory tower mm. and talk in language that can be comprehended. But you also need to get around the country and, and do that and explain. And actually it's great fun. But it's also really, really important to do that and be on the media, but it's also really important to do that where you're not competing with the politicians themselves mm. because they're the people that have bestowed the power on you. So this is a... I mean, what I've just described isn't easy to get right, actually. Mm. But you're still seeing... I, I don't mean to deal parochially only with the UK, but taking it as an example, you're still seeing Parliament as the main route for accounting to the public. So yes. Even though we'd started off by talking about um, the way, for all kinds of reasons, public trust in government and in experts had fallen, um, you're still saying there is enough there. And anyway, we, can't, we can't give up on the parliamentary democracy we, we, we've got, and so you want the accounting ultimately to be through parliament. So I, I, I see the public debate more broadly as vitally important, but ultimately the accountability to parliament, because yeah. they've given you the powers and they can take them away. There was a yeah. fantastic exchange yeah. between George Moody, who used to be the ranking member on the Treasury Select Committee, and Mervyn and I, um, I don't know, quite a few years ago now. And George said, um, I wouldn't have called him George then, I'd have called him Mr Moody. Um, he, he said, well, what is the point of all this? You lot come along here and we ask you questions and you give eloquent um, answers and then you go back to your building and it makes, none, it makes no difference at all, any of this. What's the point of it? And Mervyn and I gave the same answer, which was essentially because, well, we're independent because you decided we were independent and therefore it's our duty to decide interest rates where we think they should be. But we're here so that you can decide whether to sustain this regime at all. Yeah. And we, I think our attitude was not to defend independence in the way that in the US yeah. the Fed will... In, you know, this is something that's been given and it's something that can be taken away and that those occasions are about in a sense, them implicitly deciding whether to continue with it and th thereby affirming the legitimacy that only they can bestow. Because they're deciding yeah. that on the behalf of the people because they have been elected by the yeah. people. So, and, I, and I think, you know, yeah. in the field I was in, I think Treasury ministers are accountable to Parliament for the regime in our system of government. I, think it's, I, don't, I don't think the, the agency is there to, to defend the design of the regime, they're there to defend and explain the exercise of the extraordinary mm. powers they've been given. Mm. But just to take the arc of this, I mean, while you say, and I, I find very uh, persuasively, look, there is a real problem, and some of this is an old problem, but some of it is a very new problem. Um, you're not arguing for scrapping the agencies, and you're arguing for the legitimacy that you say that they, they need to earn again. 
happening through Parliament, through what is there already. You're not ripping it all up and saying Mark, Carney, Mark Carney's legitimacy will lie in his tweets to the public at large. You're saying, look, we, we have to work with what we've got there. Yeah, and, I think you should engage with the public. And, on, and, yeah. I, and to be clear, on agencies, I, I think something like the, um, the Public Administration Committee should be encouraging an audit mm. of... Mm of these agencies and mm. whether they meet something like or mm. my criteria or mm. other, some other set yeah. of criteria. And my best guess is, if that happened, that some of them would cease to be as independent as they are mm. uh, uh, today and others would have their, some of the utility regulators would have be given rather more carefully thought through objectives but would remain um, insulated from both branches. Mm. And, and actually, uh, I think if that happened, my hunch is that in this country, the de facto position would be more nearly aligned with the de jure position. I worry in this country, not something I discuss in depth, um, that some of the de jure independence is a bit of an optical illusion. Mm. You were going to name at least one you thought was going, should be less independent. Oh, the FCA. All right, thank you. The FCA. OK, great. Let's have some questions. Um, it's, it's in the middle. Yeah, yeah. James Kidner from Improbable. Um, fascinating talk, and thank you for this. And clearly, we must all read the book. But can you help us out? You didn't touch on commissioners, and you didn't touch on ombudsmen. Do they also cause you anxiety, or are they sort of exempt? Let me talk about the tribunal, um, which I think is more important than the ombudsman. The tribunal is an incredibly interesting um, institution in this in this country because it's the appeal body, as you know. And it takes um, appeal on the merits rather than just process on all of the, pretty well all of the regulators. And I'm sure you all also know that in Australia, it was decided that the equivalent system should not be judicial, whereas um, here it is. Now, now it's, I want to read something, um, if I can find it. So actually it was a current Supreme Court member that said this when he was head of the tribunal system. Expediency requires that where Parliament has established such a specialist appellate tribunal in a particular field, its expertise should be used to best effect, and I'm emphasizing the coming words, to shape and direct the development of law and practice in that field. That's the language of a policymaker. I know what a policymaker sounds like. I was one for a very long time. Now, the key thing about the tribunal is that it never, and if you talk to the people in the various agencies, they will say, oh, you know, sometimes in a bad mood, they'll say, I don't know why we come in. The tribunal makes all the policy, really. But, um, which kind of, I'm sure is an exaggeration. But um, the tribunalists um, never testify to a select committee because that would, that would um, breach um, judicial independence and the separation of powers between the judiciary and the, and the legislature. And that works fine um, as long as they're um, reviewing process. It does not work fine if they are, um, through appeals on merits, are essentially establishing the substance of policy under, under vague mandates. I think this is a pretty nasty um, issue that the US has, has escaped because appeals on merits are done within the commissions to the commissioners. They have a completely separate set of issues. Can I give another example? Which this, this, is, this, is, this is small in substance, but I think big in, um, in signaling. So my old shop has decided, rightly, I think this was in train before I left, that they would set up an enforcement committee of 
um, so as to separate the investigation of particular cases um, from the decision on the use of, of powers. That's just kind of standard separation of powers, internalizing it um, within the institution. Well, one of the people that's been appointed to this new body, this was a couple of weeks ago, is a member of the House of Lords. And I, it is not an ad feminine point at all. In the US, someone would have gone straight to court and saying this breached the Constitution, breached the separation of powers. Not a comment on it here. Mm. And obviously it didn't occur to the court of the bank or to the top executive of the, of the bank. And yet what is it to be a lawmaker and actually sit on an enforcement? I mean, the, the, the big point I want to make is that in the 17th century and the 18th century, you know, our forebears in this country had really, really profound debates about this stuff. And this is one of the glories of the modern world. And today, um, someone can appoint a legislator as a member of, of, mm. of essentially a court, mm. a small C, and no one even notices. Really good point. Let me, um, uh, middle, back. Um, quite a lot of, yes, I, uh, yes, you. Yes, yes. yes. Okay. I'll, I'll take it anyway. Yes, John Pete from The Economist. And I don't want to take you too far off um, the main points you're talking about, but I wonder how your framework fits the European Union, particularly if you're a Greek looking at the European Central Bank. Um, well, the, I say somewhere that the European Central Bank is both more than a central bank and it's less than a central bank. It's less than a central bank because people go along and vote. It, it seems the pattern is to vote for national positions rather than according to the um, legal mandate of the ECB. It's a lot more than a, um, um, a central bank because I said earlier that all central banks are quasi-fiscal institutions. Well, in, 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 in filled-out constitutional setups, um, the central banks are fortunate enough that there really is a fiscal authority over there that's been elected that can do stuff. Mm. If you don't have one of those, then you reinvent yourself in emergencies as the fiscal authority. Well, that's what they did. I mean, Carl Schmitt is a very dangerous man, but he said, I mean, he, he, I mean the, the, the Nazi era um, political theorist, but he said, who decides in an emergency is the true sovereign? So the ECB emerged as the economic sovereign. Mm. Um, I think Ma Mario's greatest duty is to find a way out of, of that. I think it's utterly mm. unsustainable. For the rest, it's it's... Um, I think the, the EU, John, would do well to, to, to have the court take a further notch away from the Moroni doctrine so that the independent agencies, the so-called ESAs, are not under the control of the Commission. So as you, for everyone in the room that doesn't know this, the constitutional proposition is that legally binding norms can only be issued by the Commission, and therefore to the extent that you set up independent agencies, rulemaking bodies like the banking authority, like the securities market regulator. They have powers of, they have strong powers of recommendation and de facto control, but everything is um, finally under the control of the um, commission, as indeed are their budgets. And so you have unelected people overseeing unelected people. There are points about the parliament I could make as well, but it's something to be getting on with. Yeah. Uh, here on the aisle. Yes, you, you. Yeah, sorry. Long Isle. Amanda Spielman from Ofsted. Um, I'm interested to hear um, any reflections you have on those of us who are set to inspect and regulate 
public sector provision who are probably set up to be independent on the basis that, that people don't necessarily trust government um, to, to, to judge, judge their own performance? So, so I'd make two things. Um, be, beware of the infinite regress. So there is no doubt, this view is held strongly in Paris, that independent agencies flourished for a while um, because people had lost trust in the executive branch. But, you know, don't imagine that trust, distrust is located just people we elect. It can spread to you too. Um, the, the other thing I would say about your field is a few years ago, um, I think there's a footnote in the book on this, a, a, somebody that retired from either the Department of Education or from your body gave a speech saying this curriculum should be decided by unelected people rather than by, by elected um, people. And I don't know what my substantive view on that is. But it is, and the argument for doing so, of course, is to get away from chopping and changing. You get somebody who read history um, who's the minister and they want it all to be about the 17th century. You get somebody that did biology and they want to increase natural sciences or something. Um, and, and I don't know what the substantive answer is, but it's, it's these things um, matter a lot. And it matters equally that, that if you're monitoring compliance with policies, that this should not be a backdoor to make policy. And, and, but many people who have been bosses of inspectorates have used it as a platform um, to promote their views on policy. And my view is that that's an abuse of power. I mean, it's, I, towards the end of the book, I have, I set out some principles of self-restraint. It, it, is, it is the most extraordinary privilege to be given powers by Parliament. And by, once you are given these powers, it is, I don't think one could write laws for this, I think we need a norm that, that you are given these powers that deprives you of, of the right to participate as an ordinary citizen in other debates. And I'll give you two examples in my world. When Janet was first made head of, Janet Yellen was first made head of the Fed, she went, came up to Boston and gave a speech on inequality. And she didn't give, she didn't mention how this fitted with the Fed's remit, um, or how it affected monetary policy. It, it damaged the Fed in Congress. Raghu Rajan, when he was um, governor of the Reserve Bank of India, I give both of these as examples in the book, um, gave speeches on the importance of tolerance. These were um, coded speeches about Hindus should be nice to um, Muslims. It is one of the reasons he is no longer governor of the um, um, Reserve Bank, because it, it, in, in the second case, it gave people who weren't very comfortable with him grounds for saying, well, he's not sticking to his job. Mm. And, and you know, this is, I mean, I, I think accepting these jobs is, is you, have to, you have to think, well, what am I giving up? And you're giving up a lot. I mean, I, I, I spent a, an adult lifetime where I could speak on virtually none of the issues that interested me, other than the ones that turned up in my inbox. And, you know, that, that, all I can say is that that was a conscious choice. I, I, and that your leaders should, and the, should, 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 no. should, should, not, should not use this as a... I mean, it's a wonderful position to be in, and you can make the country a better place, but, but it's not a backdoor for shaping education policy. All right, we have a lot of... Uh, a growing number of questions. Uh, let, me, let me take two or three. Um, right at the back... 
and then we're going in the middle and over. I'm going to try and get everyone at least <coughs> to make their point, even if yeah, they um, can't answer them. Uh, Peter Riddle, I'm the, now the Commissioner of Public Appointments. Um, just one point. I mean, really striking call of what you just said is I don't think a single minister would recognise the point about the House of Lords. Uh, they would regard almost being a member of the House of Lords as not being part of the legislature. Um, because the two people, uh, two chairs of the key health service bodies for years, the chair of Ofcom is, the chair of the Charity Commission, and a number of others. I would just have to make two points. One is on your point of Parliament. I think the argument of select committees would be there are so many public bodies, we can't do it all, which comes back, I think, to something Gerardo has done a lot of work on here, which is the categorization of public bodies. You mean mainly referring to regulators, and I have the most sensitive ones for the reasons you said, Paul. But you, you need a much more explicit definition between those and executive agencies. Yes. Because the other point is, which is crucial, which is you mentioned the debate on Ofcom and BBC. I saw a bit of that in my current role. But it's also come up, and it is coming up substantially over Brexit, because it's a really big issue on how much the bodies which will take over regulatory powers now in Europe should be new bodies or should they be changing existing bodies. Now the preference of ministers of President David Lillington said this publicly as Cabinet Minister is to try and use existing bodies, which raises exactly the issue on the whole you've raised on the uh, Ofcom BBC one. And so far they've only talked about three new bodies. We'll see how that works out in practice. So, this is a very nice so, so, Peter, first of all, I should acknowledge and thank you for our discussions on this when I was starting on this project and pay tribute to you for, what was it called? Um, burn after, read before burning. And, and, and Jill's um, later papers as well. So I'm going to say more about the second issue you raised um, than the first. On the first, I think you're completely wrong. I mean... I, mean, I don't know how many pieces of legislation you've been involved with, but even as a non-civil servant, I was in quite a few, and I've um, been in meetings with both cabinet ministers and junior ministers who've said, um, no, we're not prepared to um, um, use up capital in the House of Commons in, in wiping out the, the Lord's Amendment on this. In fact, in the, in the legislation to set up the FSA in the late 90s or the Reform Bank of England in... 2012, the Lords behaved essentially as a liberal no, amendment, as a liberal amendment, as a, liber as a liberal amendment chamber. No, no, well, no, no, no. I think you're taking the point. I think the appointment of people from the Lords, that's the point. Oh, I see. Well, no, they're... Okay, well, oh, so I thought you'd say they wouldn't recognise them as a legislative body. Yeah. They're, pl they're plainly a legislative body, and I have seen them legislate, and I could name the marginal legislators on a few things in the second chamber, in which case it is extraordinary for them also to, to exercise either executive or judicial power. And in a world where we decided in modern Britain that we weren't going to have the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords be the Supreme Court, it is a bit odd to take members of the House of Lords and stick them on bodies which make enforcement decisions, when especially, paradoxically, when the motive of, of setting up the enforcement body is precisely to respect the values of the, um, um, of the separation of powers. And in, if you like, this is the model that our country is, is now in. On the, on the second... Um, this is, this is a, it's a big deal in another respect as well, because as you know, um, level one rules go via both the Council of Ministers and the 
Parliament and level two rules um, from EU agencies um, are subject to veto by both Parliament and the, um, and the Council. So it, translating that into kind of real world mm, mm. language, in my world, um, when Basel reaches an agreement on a capital accord, it is turned into law by the Federal Reserve and some other agencies and doesn't touch Congress. In this country, when I was first an official, it was turned into law um, by the Bank of England. Actually, it was turned into a soft norm by the Bank of England. Um, but over the last 20 years, it's been turned into law in a way that involves people who were elected. But it has less, less of the... Um, can't think of the right word. Anyway, the volatility, I'm going to call it, of normal politics because there are so many countries sitting around the table. So there are changes made, um, but it, it, it's, these, these are not changes that just um, reflect the sentiment of the day. Whereas, whereas if we were to involve the executive or parliament again here, um, it could become very politicised. I can remember interest rate decisions when Treasury ministers and the Prime Minister made them that were taken at absolutely the spur of the moment to underpin opinion polls way ahead. Well, you can remember this when you were reporting on that stuff mm. with the FT. Okay. I mean, you know, if you allow politics in, it will, it will be very political. I think this is a really big issue about life um, after Brexit because, in a sense, there will be less elected involvement in rulemaking in this country than there is, than there is now. Um, and some solution has to be found for that. We're almost out of time. We still have a kind of forest of hands. People have been very patient. Well, Would people like, in, in, and I <laughs> apologise for lack of time, uh, just to, to make their points quickly, and, and Paul can give an instant response. So here, here in the middle. Juliet Samuel, Telegraph. Um, I wondered to what degree the technocracy you're talking about is an inevitable outcome of globalization plus the rules-based system. Um, I mean, if you have more and more international trade and business plus more and more countries around the table and, you know, the Basel Committee and the WTO and everything being wrangled yeah. over internationally, mm. then surely what you're talking about is inevitable. A I, really interesting question. Quick answer. Like answer. Um, I, I, I think it is, but I don't think it, that is a reason for not giving them precise mandates. I think you could still, you could still constrain them. Yeah. Here, quickly, and was there one more over here, right at, right at the back? Yep. Um, Peter Bounce, what, what role should Lords Select Committees play in, in scrutiny? Because on the right. one hand, they're unelected, but on the other hand, they may have people of greater expertise. Uh, oh, I, I, th I think they should, but if I can raise an issue, I think they should be... Um, they should respect the law of the institutions themselves, so that when we used to testify to the Lord's Economic Committee. It was a, it was a I mean, you know, tremendously well-informed group. And they would only ever ask the governor questions, even when actually there were people sitting there who didn't particularly agree with the governor. Well, that's fine if the law has said that the governor decides on her or his own. It is not fine if, the, if Parliament has decided that um, the governor is one of nine or one of... Mm. One of, one of 11. I was talking to Mark about this relatively recently. I don't think he'd mind my saying that apparently testimony from the bank to the um, Lords now, he goes on his own. Well, to the extent that that's true, he's acting as a spokesman for the group and not speaking for himself, and that has to be clear. Great. Right at the back. Okay, I'm John Newton, Social Democratic Future. Your, well, your central recommendation 
is that each uh, agency should have a clear single objective. But does that really work even for Bank of England in that it's single, its primary inflation target is subject to the Chancellor's annual letter, but you are forced onto QM quantitative easing because of a failure of fiscal, you know, because the Chancellor didn't want to use fiscal policy. And there's increasing pressure now for the Bank of England to move to more multiple objectives, such as the Commission of Social Justice this morning arguing for um, employment and output out, you know, objectives. So, it's like, as I say, because it's such a complicated issue, but is, is it, life is too so, complicated? Thank, really. No, no, thank so you. there are a few issues there. So I think, I think one of the things that matters most is that you, um, you shouldn't um, give powers to an independent agency unless you believe its instruments are going to work. So there are debates about giving some agencies um, responsibilities, and it's doubtful that they have the instruments. I mean, I don't think the Bank of England um, has instruments that could improve productivity growth reliably. They might do things occasionally by luck um, that would improve productivity or harm it. Um, I I think think people in government um, can do things that can lay the basis for improvements in productivity over the medium to... To long run. The other question you make about um, um, objectives, I mean, I think the broadest answer I give is it does depend on a view of the world. So, um, so in the monetary policy field, there is a view that there is not a long-term trade-off between inflation and, and jobs. If one doesn't hold that view, I think it is much... Most, pe- most people still do, and the evidence suggests that it's true. But if one didn't hold that view, it would be much harder to defend a monetary policy independence, ex- except on one separation of powers issue that we haven't got into. And we're going to have to stop there. Apologies for those of you who had ha- hands up, uh, and even more to those who tactfully took them down. Um, but come and grab Paul. Outside, uh, uh, he's going to be signing uh, books and continuing this. Do come and have a glass of wine with us next door. What a marvelous retro sound that is suddenly um, uh, and, and really I urge you um, uh, to read this book um, which I don't often say but is really takes you from Roman law via the US constitution to Mark and Mario um, uh, and, and, and via uh, from academic um, analysis as I said to accounts of your time there and it's from our point of view at the institute in, in, extraordinarily timely Times with our work on accountability and indeed on Joe Rutter's uh, read before burning report, which we've referred to. Thank you very much indeed for coming. Join us next door. Thank you for giving up your time. Thank you. Thank you.